confusion. An international science radio show. Yeah, the bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It's pretty exotic. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Asteroid seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we palpate the pulse of science. On today's show, we have Lachlan Watmore telling us about immortal Nidarians. We have news of the Hadron Collider. Apparently a baguette fell on it. And we also have news on what might be causing your eyes to be short-sighted and what's been happening to the Mars rovers. But first up, here's Lachlan Watmore with an interesting feature on immortal Hydra. I've always held the belief that tentacles look good on animals, so one of my favourite animal phyla is cnidaria. Cnidarians are so called because they possess cnidocytes, also known as nematocysts, which are the dart-firing cells that make a blue bottle sting painful or the tentacles of a sea anemone sticky, among other functions. Cnidarians include the little hydrozoans found in fresh and salt water, the scyphozoans, which are all the true jellyfish, the cubozoans, which are all the box jellyfish, and finally the anthozoans, which includes anemones and corals. Cnidarians have simple anatomies compared to most other animals, but they can have quite complex life cycles. Cnidarians come in two large forms and one small one. The two large forms are the polyp and the medusa. For a polyp, think of a coral or an anemone, which are flower-shaped animals with radial symmetries and lots of tentacles. For a medusa, think of a jellyfish or box jellyfish, a free-swimming bell-shaped animal that moves by contraction and has lots of tentacles. The third mainly transitional small form of cnidaria is the planula larva, a microscopic free-swimming little thing that looks vaguely like an undulating shoehorn and which usually settles on the substrate and grows up to become a polyp, which can sometimes bud medusae, which produce eggs and sperm to create more planular larvae, beginning the cycle again. Biological cycles usually go one way. We're all born, we all grow, we all reproduce, we all die, and none of us, it would appear, reverse our life cycles and so achieve immortality. However, there is one cnidarian that appears to do just that. Turritopsis nutricula is a hydrozone with a very typical cnidarian life cycle. It can be found in both medusoid and polyploid forms, depending on which stage of its life cycle you're looking at. The polyps are sessile, which means they sit on the bottom of the sea. They produce the free-swimming medusae asexually by budding them off, and it's the medusa that does the sexual reproduction by making eggs and sperm. Once fertilised, an egg grows up to become a planular larva, which after a period of free-swimming settles on the bottom and becomes a polyp, starting the cycle over. The medusa isn't a true jellyfish and is very small, usually only 5 millimetres in diameter. However, because it makes gametes, or sex cells, it's regarded as the adult phase of the cycle, and in a vast majority of cnidarians, the medusa dies after maturity. But the Turritopsis medusa doesn't just not die after making gametes. 
it does an extraordinary thing. It regresses back to the polyploid shape, becoming a Cnidarian Benjamin Button, growing not old, but young. Once it's done this, it can bud off fresh medusae and continue the cycle without the inconvenience of death. It would appear to be immortal. Hail, Messiah! I'm not the Messiah! I say you are, Lord, and I should know I followed a few! So how does it do this? Well, it turns itself inside out, resorbs most of its mesoclea, which is the jelly-like inner layer which gives jellyfish their name, settles on the bottom, starts growing connecting structures called stolons, and in the fullness of time, sprouts polyps like flowers among the stolons. <laughs> it's easy. Well, the trick is in the cells. Living cells are usually specialised into special functions, and only a few creatures have the ability to change or transdifferentiate their cells once they have developed. One of these animals is Turritopsis, which so far is the only known animal to transdifferentiate its cells into a less mature stage of development. Sponges can transdifferentiate their cells, but they do it to repair damage, as do certain other cnidarians. Turritopsis is the only known animal to actually undergo immaturation. <laughs> So if I want to be immortal, all I have to do is to regress to a larval-type stage. Yeah, pretty much, mate. Just keep on going back and back and back until you split into an egg and sperm, and then you're fine, no problem. And then I, t- I can just go and start all over again. Keep in mind we're talking about an animal that is so very, very, very different from us. Yes. The, uh, the, the jump, it's, it's not even... See, I was tempted, when I was writing this, I was tempted to say, and what are the implications for human immortality? And I had mm. to answer the question, I wouldn't have a clue, really. Yeah. Because you're talking about an animal that is very simple in its, in its, uh, you know, in its anatomy, in its, its layout. Cnidarians and sponges and tenophores, they're the, the very basic phyla of animals are called diploblastic. They've only got two layers of, or epithelia of cells mm-hmm. in their embryological form. The rest of us all have three. We're all called triploblastic. Yep. We all have, uh, what is it, the mesoderm, mesoderm endoderm, and ectoderm. Yep. Endoderm. Whereas these guys have only got an entroderm and an endoderm and the mesoglea, which is the gelatinous layer in between, which gives jellyfish its name. So their specialities are at the cellular level, right? These guys don't have much to do histologically. But cytologically, yeah, oh, wow, they're amazing. You guys, you know, doing medicine, you've probably done some studies on sponges and the communications between sponge cells. Uh, In my father's day, when he <laughs> did his vet degree, he did a fair bit of study of sponges. I think sponges, they cut that from the course just uh, recently for a <laughs> year. You probably don't treat sponges anymore. No, no. no. But whereas doing vet, you do. Um, no. Sponges are incredibly simple in their anatomies, but the cellular communication between their cells is incredible. The transdifferentiation they can do is amazing. You can take a sponge, push it through a piece of cheesecloth until it's a pile of cells on the other side. It will then rearrange itself. It will then rebuild itself into close to the shape and size that it was before you pushed it through the cheesecloth. Wow. Imagine if I could put you through a you know, fly screen until you're a pile of bloody cells on the end of it and then sat back and watched you reassemble yourself. That's what a sponge can do. When I was a baby, I kept a diary. <laughs> Recently, I was rereading and it said, Day one, still tired from the move. <laughs> it 
Day two, everybody talks to me like I'm an idiot. I remember turning from one years old to two years old, I was real upset because I figured in one year my age doubled. If this keeps up, by the time I'm six, I'll be 90. It was my birthday recently. For my birthday, I got a humidifier and a dehumidifier. <laughs> Put them in the same room, let them fight it out. We got some sad news. Um, we had some sad news, uh, which only hit the paper that I noticed this morning anyway. And I'm just going to bring it up on the little computer. Oh, no. Okay, jeez, I'm glad we're recording this. No, oh, not, 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 not tragically sad. Um, scientifically sad. Scientifically sad, but at the same time, <laughs> a celebration of a, of a life. Precisely sad. Precisely sad. <laughs> Specifically, statistically sad. Mildred, <laughs> Dr. Mildred Cohen, a biochemist who overcame religious and sex discrimination to advance the study of metabolic processes. I'm reading this right out of the New York Times, by the way. Uh, contributed to the research and development of MRIs, died in the middle of October at the grand old age of 96. So she had a nice innings. Uh, just before she died, she was inducted into the Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls, New York. And uh, that was the, sorry, that was the day after she died, but she did actually learn beforehand that she was going to get it. So that was really good. Um, Dr. Cohen was had an extraordinary brain. She uh, graduated from high school aged 15 and graduated from university aged 17 with a major in chemistry and a minor in physics. Um, she decided that biochemistry was definitely the way to go and for the next 20 or so years fought discrimination and prejudice and bigotry because she was not only female, she was also Jewish. And mm. certain chemical companies in the States, right up until about the 60s or so, were actually explicit in their anti-Semitism and their sexism, mm. um, putting ads out that said uh, applicants are expected to be male and Christian. Trust you are Gentile, as they said to Groucho Marx. So mm. uh, Mildred Kahn spent a lot of time uh, fighting that sort of bigotry. Uh, finally, she achieved her PhD in 1960, and she did some amazing things with isotopes. She looked at the uh, tracking of different isotopes uh, from a medical point of view throughout the human body and used uh, extensive, uh, did a lot of research in magnetic resonance imaging and had a reputation for when a piece of equipment wasn't available or simply hadn't been invented, she'd usually invented herself. She's a very accomplished, um, amazing lady. Mildred Cohen, she sounds absolutely like, incredible. Absolutely, and to finish university at seventeen, uh, it's the age of seventeen. Makes some of us feel then, a little inadequate. Then there's that you know, <laughs> pushing poo up a hill with a feather fight of yeah. the, the she bigotry. Uncrushable. Well, yeah, mm. she was. Sounds there's a picture. I, I couldn't get the picture to to get into idea, this yeah. word file, unfortunately. But if you have a look on the the net, have a look at her photograph. Mm. You find yourself. I'm not going to bother describing it. Just folks out there, if you're listening, look up Dr. Mildred Cohen on the internet and just have a look at a photograph. There's just something about a face that is just really, I don't know, really nice and warm mm. and no nonsense about it. She, mm. she looks as though she's the sort of woman who you'd really love to have as a mum or a grandmum, but at the same time, she's not going to take any nonsense from anybody. Mm. She knew uh, she had a job to do. My word. And she did it. So. Oh, that's sad. We'll miss you, Dr. Cohen. Now here we go, jumping science, jumping it all over. Like bumping around the town, like when you're driving a Range Rover. Been jumping the new science, and I've been kicking the new knowledge. And I see to a degree that you can't get in college. It's the sound of 
You're listening to Diffusion, Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SER.com. Brought to you across Australia from the Community Radio Network. What do, we do, next? do we want to talk about the Mars rovers? Let's talk about the Mars rovers. <laughs> Just very quickly. Well, Spirit is they, in trouble. Didn't they expect Spirit's batteries to run out of battery? very ago? philosophical. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Metaphysical. I just think it's so funny. Like, spirit has always floundered, but opportunity shines strong. (laughs) (laughs) You you just can't invent this stuff. It writes itself. (laughs) So good. Um, But yeah, so spirit's been stuck for six months, and Mars winter's now coming. And so they're, I mean, it's pretty much, it's stuck in a sand dune. They're trying to get it out. They've been trying for months. And the the problem is um, with Mars winters, there's no more solar power Mm. for spirit and by the time summer rolls around next year it's just it's going to be dead the batteries will be gone Mm. does mars have a uniform winter all over its globe well last time spirit actually managed to find a little sunlit Mm. area last summer to uh, last winter to just beat it but not this time yeah Mm. because it's it's totally stuck it's at the bottom of a valley and there's a rock pinned underneath it and you know it's three front wheels are stuck and the only one that's kind of out of the sand is the one that seized up in 2006 it's just really <laughs> it's kind of a tragic story when you read it oh it's um, stuck so they poor, need someone poor to spirit <laughs> yeah they need someone so to get out and push yeah where do the mars rovers how how is uh how are the mars rovers supplied with their energy how, well, do, they, how do they make it they're solar paneled they were mm. only actually planned to, to be on mars for three months mm. So it, and it's been six years. <laughs> yeah, that's so a pretty good. They've effort. done really well out of those little yeah. tables on wheels, haven't yeah. they? Yeah. So and um, you know, they're they're pretty amazing. They they've taught us that there was once lots and lots of water on Mars, which mm. is pretty exciting, and hopefully we'll be able to fund lots more research for Mars exploration in the future. So, mm. what about the LHC? Well, the LHC, the latest is that what's gone wrong was caused by a bird dropping a baguette. No. I didn't know As birds like baguettes. <laughs> How could a bird even carry it's, a baguette? It's How very Monty Python. A <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a question of weight ratios. How big was this bird? How small was the baguette? <laughs> and exactly. did it use string? And was it a European was it a bird m- or an African bird? <laughs> was it a man in a bird costume? <laughs> <Was it> sabotage? <laughs> and what was the nationality of the bird? The baguette. Or the baguette. Yes, I know. <laughs> so, French so a bit of bread from the sky stopped the LHC. Is wow. the story? Maybe it's a sign. Bread from the sky. That, that, that sounds is like so a, weird. How much more mm. direct can you be? <laughs> I could, yeah, chances are, it was dropped by a bird, not out of a plane. Well, I haven't yeah. read the full report. Okay. How often do you drop bread out of a plane, though? Uh, not very often, <laughs> unless you unless you're feeding the hungry, <laughs> and then you drop a lot of bread out of a plane. I guess you might. Yeah. But I, my understanding was, was that the tunnel was underground. This is my mm. problem. So I the baguette would actually have to burrow, burrow <laughs> through the into earth. the ground. <laughs> <laughs> I think Switzerland. <laughs> further uh, reading of the story on the internet is required. I've only seen the summary. I haven't managed to click through yet. Mm. Oh, that's pretty great. Because oh. I want to know how exactly how did the baguette get to the underground tunnel to be a problem <laughs> in the first place? And was it what? an American baguette? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, luck. I've got an interesting topic here that's very close to my heart, being, being a man who's visually challenged myself. Um, there's new, <laughs> new, 
new information on the causes of short-sightedness, or at least some of the associations of short-sightedness. Now, the technical term for short-sightedness is myopia, and we have uh, quite a bit of understanding on what goes wrong in myopia. So we understand that the structure of your eye has got a lot to do with how well you're able to focus light. So if you imagine the old high school physics and biology um, lessons, how they teach you about um, how light travels in the shape of your eye and how it refracts light. Light travels into your eye in straight lines and gets uh, refracted by your cornea and by your lens so that it uh, reaches a spot that converges onto your retina at the back. It's, it gets really focused, isn't yes, it? Yes, right? it mm. gets really focused. Um, and um, for people who are myopic, what happens is your eye is either a little bit too um, long or your lens is a little bit too strong and it gets focused in front of your retina. So you don't actually see a clear image for objects that are far away. They become blurry. Um, and that's what I've got. And there has been some research recently which has been defunking some of the old notions that short-sightedness is caused by too much time in front of a television screen or a computer screen. Or reading. Uh, or too much time reading. Under poor light. Yes. Mm. Um, which are all, they all sound like terribly bad things, but they might not be what cause, be the causes for myopia. Mm. It seems now that exercise outside or even just spending time outside protects you from being myopic. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that people who spend time outside spend less time reading or doing activities which require you to look at things close up. It's just the physical act of being outside and exercising and uh, being somewhere where I suppose you have more natural light, um, which is able to prevent you from getting short-sighted. Mm. Um, they, yeah, I read Sorry? Yeah, they, they do. Well, they're, they're coming up with some theories. Mm -hmm. Patrick, you were doing beautifully, so oh, I'll let you take it away. Well, I, I'm afraid I'm not really up on the theories. Well, I can, oh. I can, can read the rest. I've, I've read the rest. Yes. Uh, they've oh, okay. got two ideas. One is the intensity of the light. Mm -hmm. Might be, but then they don't really have a mechanism for that. What seems more likely is that it's the distance. Because when you're outdoors, you can look all the way into the distance with your eyes relaxed and all of the light is focused in the same place in your eye. But when you're indoors, the stuff directly in front of you might be focused directly on the right part of your eye. But around the peripherals of your eye, your eye's a little bit different shape and they won't be correctly focused on the back of your eye if you have a little bit of myopia to start with. Mm -hmm. And as a result, your eye's trying to adjust to the myopia. It has not the clarity it's already got. So that's why a lot of people who spend a lot of time indoors, and in countries where people spend more, particularly where children spend more time indoors, you get more myopia that gets worse over the years. Whereas in countries like Australia, where the children spend just as much time watching TV and playing games and reading, because they spend more time outdoors because of the weather, they have less incidence of myopia, and it doesn't increase as quickly. Hmm. But they, um, in support to the actually intense, actual intensity of the light theory, um, they actually made a study with canaries, and they f 
fashioned tiny little lenses to make the canaries' eyesight blurry. And then they put three groups of canaries, so some of them were outside, or no, it was chicks, not canaries, I'm sorry. Um, I just love the mental image of canaries wearing <laughs> glasses, I guess. We use um, canaries far too much <laughs> in human history. That's right. These are disposable chicks with so, glasses. Yeah, yes. were, good for mine shafts, good for my OPM. Exactly. Why not? <laughs> so they had um, chicks outside and chicks indoors, and then they had chicks uh, in very strong, intense indoor lights. And they found that the chicks with the intense indoor lights had the risk of myopia or the myopia incident um, decreased by 40%. Mm. And the chicks that were outdoors all the time had it um, decreased by an additional 40%. And they have no idea, as Ian said. Um, they can't explain it, but it's it's a pretty striking finding, I think. Mm. Yeah. And they also, um, <laughs> in the same vein of striking findings, um, they one researcher linked high carbohydrate diets with myopia and um, they did a little bit more research on that and they found that um, high insulin levels in the blood causes uh, the lens to keep growing and so instead of staying at that nice sphere shape it becomes elongated which could be why um, our new diets could be causing more myopia. So it becomes, when you say it becomes elongated as in it becomes a bit thicker and a bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. And that's because um, insulin is very similar to a growth factor in our body called insulin-like growth factor, which actually makes a whole bunch of other tissues grow as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the interesting things about the theory about light from the edges of your vision coming in was they were looking at one of the ways you can correct your vision. I mean, you can have glasses, you can have contact lenses, you can have laser surgery, or... I've had two of the three, in. Continue. <laughs> well, there's, a, there's another one that's less known where you can get a contact lens that you wear while you sleep and then you take it out during the day and the surface of your eye stays with the shape as if it had been laser treated. So for it the molds day, your eye. Just for the, for the day. day. Yeah, it's a hard lens that you sleep yeah. with at night. So wow. it molds your eye. So you, you've got... Is it lens. comfortable to wear? I haven't tried it. Mm. But the point of it is that they focus on the front part of the eye where you see and the people who use that didn't get the progressively worse myopia that people who use glasses or contact lenses get and contact lenses tend to cover most of the eye so it gets all of your peripheral vision whereas these hard lenses that you wear at night to mold your eyes don't have that effect so it supports that that is one of the causes that makes a lot of sense because it's actually your cornea that does most of the focusing your lens actually does fairly little of the overall focusing. So, so there you go. So, has, I suffer from myopia as well. Has your eyesight gotten more short-sighted as time's gone on, or has it stayed the same? Um, Do you know? I wish it had stayed the same, Ian, but it has got more short-sighted, especially over the last two years, mm. as I spend a lot of time uh, indoors. indoors because they have a solution. Trying to, yes, trying <laughs> to figure out stuff about the human body. Well, one of the things they recommend, which goes back to research several years old, is that if you regularly take breaks when you're reading at least every half hour to look mm. up and into the distance, possibly more often than half an hour, maybe every page or two. That's what my ophthalmologist said. Exactly. Uh, then it's very likely, I mean, they said the eye exercises don't do very much, but the resting of your eyes to the distance does. I find it's quite difficult, though, when I'm sitting at my desk to find distance. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I can look up from my book very easily, yes. but to actually find that nice landscape to focus on is 
just a bit harder. Yes, the world beyond the desk is all blurry, <laughs> so it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to find something. There is no distance. I um, think one of the best ways to make yourself go blind was one was to try and look at one of those three D pictures that were really popular about ten years ago. They've just come back. Oh. Those I, those horrible. I hate them. Fuzzy ones. They're fantastic. You can. Do get, you need the glasses? No, 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 no. You no. basically defocus your eyes and yes. so that you see double, yeah. and then the stereo overlaps and you see 3D and you see a hidden picture. No. Mm. No. And there's no texture, very very poor shapes. I was well, always bad at that. Yeah. I, I have there's never pretty much no definition. I was pretty good at I, it. I got, <laughs> I got one once and I thought, I was disappointed. I thought, yeah, okay, great, yeah, I can see around it and everything and um, I can't remember what it was. I think it was a pig or something like that. And that, Okay, great, I've seen that, done that. <laughs> What's for lunch, you know? I feel like it's a conspiracy because everybody speaks about being able to see these things and yeah. I have tried for mm. hours mm. and I think um, I was born with um, strabismus. Uh-huh. I was born cross-eyed and I've had an operation since to, to fix my eyes. Mm. So it's, we're, we're lots, you know, lots of visually impaired people in the studio at the moment. But, um, <laughs> Three out well, of four. I visited... <laughs> no, four out of four. four, out of four. <laughs> I visited friends in Canada who'd had this one of these magic eye posters on their wall for 10 years and I was just visiting from them for the first time and I looked at it and I defocused I said oh it's cool that's Snoopy in a space helmet and they just looked at me in horror and said we've had that there for 10 years and we've never been able to see it Papa, there's a little ditty they're singing in the city, especially when they've been on the gin or the beer. If you've got the patience, your own imaginations will tell you just exactly what you want to hear. Oh, Papa, oh, Papa, that's how it goes. Oh, Papa, oh, Papa, everyone knows. They all suppose what they want to suppose when they hear all and that's all from us here at Diffusion. If you have any feedback for us, if you have any praise, if you have any requests at all, send us an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or you can visit us on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. On today's show, we had the lovely Lachlan Watmore, Victoria Bond, Ian Wolfe, and yours truly, Patrick Ruby. Diffusion is produced and panelled at the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion (laughs) is great. Just watch us next week.